0: hurricane. In the midst of a hurricane, the winds spin in circular patterns up to 180 miles per hour. But at the center of the storm, the winds die down and an eerie calm exists. My wife grew up in South Florida and she lived through several hurricanes. Her family would always huddle in the hallway until the storm had unleashed its fury when the eye of the hurricane passed over, Kathy's dad would lead the family out into the backyard to experience that strange serenity as the eye passed over. They had braved a fierce storm, and they would soon be right, be right back in its teeth. But the eye of the storm was that brief reprieve, that opportunity to catch their breath. It was nature's intermission. Well, First Timothy was written... In the eye of a hurricane. Paul had just endured a fierce storm. And unbeknownst to him, he was headed right back into its teeth. But for the moment, there was a calm. There was a brief serenity. Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem, imprisoned in Caesarea. And then he was tried before Caesar Nero in Rome. Though the emperor set Paul free, his freedom would be short-lived. Just two years later, in 65 AD, Paul would be arrested again for the final time. And a year later, he would be beheaded, martyred for his faith in Jesus Christ. A ferocious storm was behind him. Another ferocious storm was ahead of him. But in the middle, in the eye of the hurricane, Paul picked up his pen and he wrote two letters. He wrote 1 Timothy, and he wrote the letter to Titus. He did so enjoying that calm in the midst of the storm. 2 Timothy was written when the storm returned and in the final days of his life. Now, to this point, Paul's letters have been addressed to churches. But these next four letters are addressed to individual believers, Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. These three men were pastors And thus these letters are called the pastoral epistles. They teach the priorities and the character and the conduct of a church leader. You could call these four books lessons for leaders. And Paul's theme verse really for these four letters is 1st Timothy chapter 3 verse 15. Paul says, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. And that's what 1st Timothy, Titus, Philemon are all about. Timothy now was both Paul's understudy and his troubleshooter. You remember whenever a church had problems, Paul would send Timothy to the church to straighten it out. These two men were tight. Paul and Timothy had a wonderful relationship. They were like father and son. In fact, in verse 2 of chapter 1, Paul calls Timothy my true son in the faith. Paul was a spiritual dead to the younger Timothy. We'll also see from Paul's writings that Timothy was a bit timid. Paul's letters to Timothy are laced with encouragement. They're designed really to light a fire under his faith. In 1st Timothy, Paul follows a pattern in his writing He will issue a charge to Timothy, then he will issue a praise to God. He'll urge Timothy, then he'll praise God. He'll charge and he'll praise. And on and on it goes. The pattern gets repeated. And it causes Timothy to look inward, then upward. Inward, then upward. That's a good policy for us. That's a good pattern for us. There are times when we need to look inward, but that should always be followed by those times of looking upward in praise And in adoration of the Lord. Now Paul started the church in Ephesus. But in chapter 1 verse 3 he tells us that when he moved on he had Timothy remain. Needless to say Paul had some big shoes to fill. Pastoring in the wake of Paul was like taking over for Bear Bryant. Or filling in for Billy Graham. And a timid young Timothy needed a little nudge to step up to the challenges. And that's why Paul's urgings begin. In verses 3 and 4, he charges Timothy to insist on pure doctrine. Apparently, these teachers in Ephesus had strayed from Scripture into speculation. You know, that often happens today. Teachers begin to pose wild fabrications. They get off into strange speculations. What does the Bible say about UFOs? Come tonight and we will disclose who is the Antichrist. Suddenly tabloid replaces truth. Teachers get sidetracked and they begin to sidetrack the church with silliness rather than major own issues that cause us to grow. Paul says in chapter 1 verse 5, the purpose of scripture isn't entertainment or fascination. It's to promote love from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. As a matter of fact, the Christian gospel has always been about love, not law. Apparently, these Ephesian teachers also had a legalistic slant. They were pulling in all kinds of conjectures and speculation to support adherence to the Jewish law. According to them, God's favor, God's blessing, was only for the people who were willing to jump through their hoops, fulfill their dues and their don'ts, follow their little rules. You've heard of hula hoops. Well, they were promoting a series of holy hoops. That you had to jump through if you wanted to gain God's favor and God's blessing. In verses 7 and 8, Paul indicates that these legalistic teachers were misusing God's law, misusing His commands. They were using the law unlawfully. Sadly, this often happens. People are prone to use the Scriptures in an erroneous way. To misuse and misinterpret the Word of God. It reminds me of the guy in Houston, Texas, who fell on hard times. He turned to his Bible for guidance, but he played what we call Bible roulette. You know, he just started to thumb through the pages, and he closed his eyes, and he put his finger down on the page. And there he read the two words, olive oil. Well, he took it as a sign from God. And he invested in Texas oil wells, and overnight the man became a millionaire. But soon the oil boom bought him out. And once again, he was faced with financial hardships. He opened his Bible again and again played Bible roulette and he pointed to the page and it said, Paul was placed in the stocks. And so he invested in the stock market and again made millions of dollars. Well, over the course of the last few months, you know what's happened to the stock market? It's taken a dive. And so again, this man has been hit hard. And just recently, he opened his Bible once more, closed his eyes, and pointed down to the page. And this time, his finger landed on the words, chapter 11. (laughs) Guys, don't be guilty of using the Bible unbiblically, the law unlawfully. Paul says in verse 9, the law is not not for the righteous person, but for the lawless person. A person with rebellion in his heart is the person who needs parameters and rules for his hands. People without Jesus need the do's and the don'ts because they lack the proper wants. But the Christian has been made a new creation. We've been given a new set of desires. Our instinctive pull of our heart is to love God and to love others. Rather than pin a person in to the law, a Christian needs to be turned loose to love. Remember, the law is like an x-ray. It shows the break, but it doesn't fix it. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We gain God's favor and God's forgiveness by faith and faith alone. There's no reason to live with the law looking over your shoulder when you have the Spirit of God guiding your heart. We're to walk by faith. Paul was the perfect example of a man let loose to love. The law had made him an angry, bitter, religious fanatic. But it was grace that had turned the madman into a minister. In verse 13, Paul describes himself before his conversion to Christianity. He says, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. And in verse 15, he even refers to himself as the chief of sinners. But God saved the chief of sinners to prove he was able to save all sinners. With Paul, God set an important precedent. Nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace. No blasphemer or persecutor or arrogant person is unreachable. If God can save Paul, there's hope for us all. In verse 17, Paul charges Timothy to Paul's charge to Timothy is followed by praise to God. Again, the pattern being repeated. He says, Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy needs to do his duty because God deserves the glory. But in verse 18, Paul issues a new charge, a new challenge. He says, This charge I commit to you, son, Timothy, According to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith in a good conscience. Now, Timothy's tendency was to cower in fear rather than rise up in the power of the Lord. And part of his problem was a poor memory. In the past, God had made some personal promises to Timothy. And he needed to remember those promises, to put his trust in those promises. You know, guys, an old promise becomes a new motivation when it's recalled at the right time. What old promises has God made to you that you're forgetting today that can make an impact, that can provide motivation for your life in the midst of the struggle you face? In chapter 1, verse 20, Paul mentions the sad case of Hamanas And Alexander, two men who, concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. They had renounced their faith, apparently, and Paul had delivered them to Satan, he says, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, what all that means, I'm not sure. But I know one thing I don't want it to happen to me. I don't want to be turned over to Satan that I might learn not to blaspheme. I hope it doesn't happen to you either. I do know this, by maintaining our faith, by keeping a good conscience, we can protect ourselves from a similar plight. We can avoid shipwreck in the faith, and we can walk in victory. The first four verses of 1 Timothy chapter 2 provide the church its political agenda. Paul says... Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Now here is the first, the first number one on our political agenda. Pray for our leaders. Now, Paul said, pray for Nero. Wow, Nero? The wicked, vile Nero? But if we're supposed to pray for Nero, then I would imagine we should pray for Bill Clinton. Or George Bush. Or any of the leaders that God gives us today. That's step number one. We need to pray. With prayer, with supplication, with intercessions giving thanks for all men and for kings and for those who are in authority. And then notice in verse 2, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Now what should we pray for? He says we should pray that we may lead a quiet and a peaceable life in all godliness and reverence so that we can share the gospel. And lead men to Jesus Christ. That's God's desire. Rather than picket or protest, our priority needs to be prayer. Rather than push for a government takeover, we need to pray for government's tolerance. So that we can carry out the business of the kingdom. Preaching the gospel. Sharing God's love. Notice verse 3 makes it clear that God wants not just some, but all men to be saved. Did you see that? God wants all men to be saved. Our goal is not the Christianization of institutions, but the evangelization of individuals. And God has appointed a middleman. Someone who can broker a peace. Someone who can take the hand of God and put it in the hand of man. Someone who can restore God and man together. And this one mediator, this mediator, he's fully God. And he's fully man. And thus he's qualified to represent both. He has paid a ransom for our sin and he can gain for us our forgiveness. And verse 5 identifies this go-between, our go-between with God. He says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Guys, notice Paul says that there is one mediator and only one There is only one person that can connect you with God. There is only one person who has clout with God that you can go to and that can gain for you God's blessing and His favor and His forgiveness. And that one person is not Muhammad. It's not Buddha. It's not Moses. It's not the Virgin Mary. It's the man, Christ Jesus. Human beings come in two varieties. Have you noticed this? Male and female. And in the latter half of chapter 2, Paul instructs both male and females regarding their specific roles in church life. In verse 8, men should pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. In verse 9, women are encouraged to dress modestly and to adopt simple tastes. I tell my daughter she can dress mod, but modest. A lady in the Lord should seek to impress society, not with her figure or her glamour, but with her fervor for the Lord Jesus. Verse 11 reads, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Do I hear an amen? Oh. Now, at the men's night the other night, everybody said amen when I read that verse. But with your wife sitting next to you, boy, you guys got real quiet, didn't you? Now, if you take this verse in its strictest sense, that a woman should never, ever speak in church, you got some problems. Not just with your wife, but you got some problems with the Scriptures. Because there are other places in the New Testament where women do speak in church. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 5 speaks of women praying and prophesying in the congregation. Acts chapter 21 verse 9 speaks of Philip's four daughters who prophesied. Titus chapter 2 verse 4 encourages the older women to teach the younger women. And I'm sure that was expected to be done in church. Verse 11 is not a strict silence. Verse 11 is speaking of the silence that grows out of a proper submission. Paul continues in verse 12. He says, And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Guys, in the church and in the family, the man is to be the leader and the woman is to supportively follow. Men and women are of equal worth. They're certainly of equal righteousness. But they have been given different roles to play. And it applies to the church and to the home. To God's house and to your house. In verse 11, the word submission means to rank under. And everyone who has ever served in the military has had the experience of meeting someone of a higher rank who had lesser skills and lesser smarts than you had But for the sake of order, you were called on to be submissive. And this is what God asks of all the females in the fellowship. (laughs) We know you're smarter than we are. (laughs) We know that you have greater skills than we do. But God commands for you to be submissive, for the men to lead, and for the women to follow. And understand, these roles were not just applicable to the culture of the first century church. People say, oh, well, the world has changed. Things have changed. Things are different. That no longer applies. Not so. These truths are still normative and relevant for the church today. In fact, in verse 13 and 14, when Paul explains the reason for these roles, he takes the issue out of its cultural context and he takes it all the way back to the Garden of Eden, all the way back to Genesis, so it applies to the whole human family. Adam's sin was a weakness of will. Eve's sin was a doctrinal deception. And there was the difference. Because the woman sinned by mishandling God's word until the end of the age, man has been given the role of teaching doctrine and exercising authority within the church. Why else would a superior gal submit to an inferior guy? Except something happened that God wants embedded in the human psyche, that God wants embedded in the fabric of society so that we all will understand that there's something wrong, there's something happened, something changed things. And we adhere to these roles today in order to teach important lessons. Our acceptance of our God-given roles reminds the world of its fallen state, its need for the Savior. It takes us back to the Garden of Eden and reminds us that something's wrong. Don't underestimate the fact that God wants this world to remember what happened in Eden. I think most of our problems today are because of the fact that we've forgotten what happened in the Garden of Eden. We pretend that it didn't happen. That man is good. All is right. You know, all it takes is education. We've, we've forgotten that man's spirit, his inner being, has to be regenerated. Man is dead. Man has sin. We're born that way. And it all goes back To the Garden of Eden. This is why the world is full of symbols that point us back to the Garden. God has put them everywhere. Pain in childbirth. Where did that come from? From the Garden of Eden. Thorns and thistles in the workplace. Did you run across any thorns and thistles this past week in your job? I did in mine. And I still got a pretty good job. But I still run across thorns and thistles every day. Crawling serpents. We killed one in the garden the other day. All of life was affected by the fall. And God has planted these symbols. All of life was affected by the fall, including the interplay between men and women in the church and in the family. Chapter 2 closes with a cryptic verse. Chapter 2, verse 15 says, Nevertheless... She will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. What if I ask you to explain that verse? Would you have a clue? (laughs) Probably not. That's a strange verse. In the wake, though, of her disaster, remember that Eve was consoled with the promise of a Savior. Yes, she blew it. Yes, she made a big mistake. But... In response to that, God gave her hope. He told her that the Messiah would come into the world through the womb of a woman. Genesis 3 verse 15 promised that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. The seed of the woman. The woman would play an important role in the salvation of humanity. And it was this childbirth, the birth of Jesus Christ and our faith that brings about our salvation. He's not saying here that that if you have kids, you're going to be saved. He's saying, no, you are saved in the childbearing if you continue in faith in the child that was born. A literal Greek translation of chapter 2, verse 15, renders it through the childbearing. Or the amplified version, it puts it, through the childbearing, that is the birth of the divine child, which of course was Jesus Christ. Paul is not saying that a woman is saved because she has children, but she's saved because she continues in the faith of the childbirth, meaning Jesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul lists qualifications for both elders and deacons. He starts with bishops, or in the Greek it's the word overseers. Acts 20 and 1 Peter 5 make this term synonymous with both elder and and pastor. So whenever you see in the Scriptures bishop or elder or pastor, it's all the same person. All three words refer to the same man. But they describe different aspects of his leadership. Bishop refers to what he does. He oversees his ministry. Elder is the man himself. His maturity and pastor means shepherd. It illustrates his method. Today, Churches stress the structure and the hierarchy of church government, while the quality of the people who fill the slots gets compromised. Whereas the Bible emphasizes the leader's caliber and character and leaves the structure the church adopts pretty much flexible and up to the leading of the Holy Spirit. You know, it really doesn't matter what church structure you adopt if the leaders who fill that structure are godly men who seek the Lord and who walk in the Holy Spirit. And that's why in chapter 3, Paul lists the qualifications of elders and deacons. Verses 2 through 7 deal with the elder. Notice, he must be respected by folks outside the church, blameless. He should be level-headed and spiritually minded. He should abstain from alcohol. Being in a position of authority, he may have to make a spur-of-the-moment decision. So he shouldn't allow his mind to become clouded. How would you like to call my house one night and say, Pastor Sandy, I have an important decision. You know, what do you think about this? How would you like that from your pastor? That's why the pastor should not be given to wine. Nor should he be addicted to women or to money or to glory. Not combative, but compassionate. He needs to have room in his heart and his home for many people while his head and his bed should be reserved for one woman. He should be a one woman man. He needs to have a handle on his home and a few years in the Lord under his belt. Paul says in verse 6, not a novice or a newcomer to the faith, lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the condemnation, the same condemnation as the devil. And of course, the devil fell because of his pride. Verses 8 through 13 list the qualifications for the deacon. Elder, understand, was a position of authority, whereas deacon was a role of service. I like to call the deacons the designated doers of the fellowship. A deacon should have a respect for God and a respect from men. Since the deacon works closely with people, he should have control over his tongue. He shouldn't be addicted to wine or to wealth or to women. Deacons should be proven men. Watch before you appoint. It's always easier to hire a deacon than it is to fire a deacon. And make sure their life backs up their profession of faith. And... Deacons also need to have their children and their home in order as well. It's been said, if your Christianity doesn't work at home, don't try to export it elsewhere. Verse 11 lists the qualifications for the deacon's wife. She must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. She needs to honor God, watch her tongue, moderate her habits, And be faithful to God in every area of her life. And especially when it comes to her tongue. The word translated here, slanderers, is the Greek word, she-devil. A wife of a deacon doesn't need to be a she-devil. Remember, the word devil means slanderer. A woman whose husband is a leader in the church will become privy to sensitive information and she needs to know how to keep her mouth shut. If she goes out and begins to gossip it abroad, she will disqualify her husband from ministry. In verse 11, the word wives can also be translated the women. And some Bible teachers, including myself, interpret the phrase as a female order of deacons or deaconesses that served in the early church. These serving sisters were organized by the early church to meet special needs of other women. Over the years, I've noticed that there are situations that arise in church life that need a feminine touch. They need a woman to deal with and to minister to. And it's nice to have deaconesses around who can meet those needs. Chapter 3 closes by reminding us that the church is the most significant institution on earth. Paul calls us in verse 15, the church of the living God. Catch this, the pillar And ground of the truth. Guys, we are the custodians of God's truth. Where do the people of this world, where can they go and find absolute truth, realities, transcendent values? There's only one place. And that is the church of Jesus Christ. The pillar and ground of the truth. And great is the mystery of godliness, Paul says. Great is the mystery of godliness. And godly must be the people who guard it. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, warns that in the last days, believers will depart from the faith. People will substitute spiritism for spirituality, satanic deception for sound doctrine, and they'll make self-deprivation and abstinence a means to godliness. Verse 3 reveals the content of the false teacher's message. He says, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. Asceticism, depriving oneself, has never been a means of spiritual growth and maturity. And yet throughout church history, people have fallen from this type of deception. Believers have thought that the more they can deny themselves, the more that they can put themselves through self-imposed suffering... The more spiritual that they can become. And so priests don't marry, and people go through all kinds of self-torture in order to supposedly become more spiritual. In the early church, there was a monk by the name of Simeon who, catch this, he sat on top of a column, sat on top of a column for 37 years. It said that he bowed 1,244 times a day. He put himself through those kinds of rigors thinking it would make him more righteous. What a shock. When he got to heaven and realized that all of that suffering didn't add one iota to the righteousness that had been earned for him by Jesus Christ. (laughs) I would imagine he was pretty defeated. Pretty bummed out. Reminds me of the Pope who died and went to heaven. And he was first thing he did is he went to the library. And he told the angel at the desk, he says, I'm going to be back. I've got a little research to do. And so he went back to the back of the library and he was pouring over the books and, and reading different things and, and reading the scriptures and, and just really studying. Very difficult. When all of a sudden the angel at the front desk heard this screech, this high-pitched Scream. And he ran back to check on the Pope to find out what was going on. And there he was. He was just shaking his head, pointing down at his Bible. And he says, there's an R. There's an R. I can't believe it. There's an R here. And they said, what do you mean? He says, it doesn't say celebrate, but it says celebrate. And there are a lot of people through the years that think by depriving themselves, they can gain a little extra righteousness, a little better standing with God. It doesn't happen. That's not how you become righteous. Certainly the Bible does endorse a voluntary fasting for the purpose of prayer. But when people begin to live a lifestyle of abstinence to make themselves more spiritual, they're wrong. There's nothing spiritual about denying yourself pleasures that God intended for you to enjoy. Denying yourself of blessings that God wants you to experience and enjoy to the fullest. Hey, it is the Holy Spirit who makes us spiritual. Not our own depriving of legitimate pleasures. I love chapter 4, verse 4. It says, For every creature of God is good. And nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Once I've recognized it as a blessing from God. Once I have prayed and thanked God for it. That bowl of ice cream. Or that T-bone steak. Slicing into that steak. Eating that bowl of ice cream. Becomes an act of worship. Once I've thanked God for it and realized it was from Him. Hey, we need to live our lives to the fullest. Just live it with God and for God and through God. Paul encourages Timothy to teach the truth and he'll be a good minister. Perhaps Timothy needed this exhortation because he was spending too much time in the gym or down at the health club. And in verse 8 of chapter 4, Paul reminds him, For bodily exercise, it profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Physical exercise, it has a few benefits. They wear off quickly. But time in the word, time in prayer, is far more valuable than time in the gym. So what if you have huge muscles? So what if you have a well toned body? Hey, hey, one day my muscles and my, my physique it's all gonna shrivel. Yeah, I know you can't believe it now, but but one day I'm gonna get flabby. I'm gonna get out of shape. You know, So what if you have these big muscles and you have that sculpted body? If your faith is flabby, if your spirit is out of shape, far better to add muscle to your faith. Far better to build up your spirit. It's the spiritual part of you that's going to last forever. Not this outward shell. Paul encourages a timid Timothy in verse 12. He says, Let no one despise your youth. But be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. God's spiritual maturity has very little to do with natural age. You can be 20 years old and be a mature Christian. You can be 75 and still a baby. If you're a young person, don't be intimidated by your age. Be bold. Be brave. Serve the Lord with boldness. In verse 13, Paul charges Timothy to read and study his Bible. We're told, leaders are readers. And if you're going to teach the Bible, you have to first study the Bible. That sounds simple, doesn't it? It's a shame that a lot of pastors have forgotten it. Paul says to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 14, Do not neglect the gift that is in you. A timid Timothy needs to stir up his God-given spiritual gifts, to put them to use in his ministry. Resting in Christ is not rusting in Christ. Faith always moves out. Faith serves God. And in verse 16 we're told, Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Good advice to young Timothy. I used to have a sign that I would hang on my office door when I was trying to study and prepare to teach the scriptures. And the sign read, Unless you're my wife or my child, please don't disturb me. I'm studying God's Word and for my sake and your sake, I really don't want to mess up. Teaching God's Word is a high stakes affair. And that's why it deserves our utmost attention. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, he says. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father... Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger as sisters with all purity. One of the tragedies of today's mobile society is the breakdown of the extended family. You know, after a few moves, after a few cities, we're no longer surrounded by grandparents and siblings and aunts and uncles. And we really don't feel it until somebody in the family gets sick. Or we suffer a financial hardship. Or we need a babysitter. We realize that suddenly the safety net is gone. But what an opportunity for the church of Jesus Christ. Guys, we can serve as each other's extended family. And that's what Paul is suggesting. That we treat older people as fathers and mothers. And that we treat younger people as brothers and sisters. In other words, that we be a family with one another. And to be a family, a big part of being a family is taking care of those who can't take care of themselves. And that's why he says in verse 3, Honor widows who are really widows. Now there were widows in the early church. "...who were supported by the church offerings. These ladies spent their time serving the saints. But not every woman who had lost her husband was supported by the church. The early church, like all churches, was faced with trying to meet unlimited needs with limited resources." And thus there were qualifications that a widow had to meet to receive the church's benevolence. These principles that Paul lists here in 1 Timothy 5, I believe, also apply to our benevolence. When we go and try to help people financially and give to people's material needs, we need to follow these principles as well. they are good rules for church benevolence. The first rule we find in verse 4, never contribute to someone's irresponsibility. If a widow has a family who can support her, the kids and the grandkids need to do their duty. And if the church does it for them, they never learn how to be responsible in that matter. Second, verses 5 through 8 teach us that the church should first take care of its own. A real widow was one who was seeking God, not just a free meal. And Paul says in verse 8, But if anyone does not provide for his own... And especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This verse, I think, not only applies to families, but it also applies to churches. We need to take care of our own household first. Third, verse 9, give God an opportunity to work through other means. He, He tells them that if a widow was less than 60 years old and still might remarry, then let her future husband meet her need. Rather than the church go and support her and undercut her incentive to marry, you know, let her be open and available. God may send someone into her life who can meet her needs and take care of her in a wonderful way. Fourth, verses 9 and 10 say, don't interfere with a lesson that God wants to teach another person. The younger ladies still had much to learn from trusting God to meet their needs. And Paul says in verse 9, not to help a widow unless she was a seasoned saint, unless she had already been in ministry and had learned many valuable lessons. The younger women still had much to learn and they could learn from their trials as long as the church didn't step in and undercut what God was doing in their lives. Fifth, verses 11 through 13, benevolence should never pose a further temptation to the person we want to help. In other words, what he was saying here was if you assist a younger widow and she takes a vow to serve the church, but later she decides that she wants to remarry, what happens when she has to break that vow? She feels condemned. And then if she chooses not to remarry and she's not a mature Christian, then you've created all kinds of problems for her. Her idleness can turn her into a gossip and a busybody. In other words, you hurt her by your benevolence rather than help her. And then 6, verses 14 and 15, benevolence should always look for long-term solutions. It was better for the younger widow to remarry and bear children, to start a new life for herself than to simply live off of the church's charity. And finally, seventh, the seventh principle, we're told encourage church members to take care of each other. Verse 16 says, If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them. And do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. People helping people should come first. Before the elders, before the church itself gets involved in the situation. Good principles, don't you think? The rest of 1 Timothy 5 tells the church that it's responsible not only for helping the poor, but also for paying the pastor. You know, some churches, their favorite prayer is this, Lord, you keep him humble and we'll keep him poor. But a good worker is worth a good wage. Verses 17 through 19 teach us how to treat the pastor. Verse 17, let the elders who rule well be count worthy of double honor. Especially those who labor in word in doctrine. In other words, if your pastor preaches a good sermon, pay him double that week. <laughs> Verse nineteen actually um, is telling us that there are ways other than just money to pay the pastor. Trust me, your respect, your love, your prayers, your patience are even more appreciated. Than money there are many ways to pay the pastor there's many ways to make his job easier and I appreciate what you do for us here at Calvary Chapel the chapter closes with Paul's instructions to Pastor Timothy verse 20 encourages church discipline those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear church discipline is a deterrent to sin verse 21 don't be prejudiced or show partiality A pastor needs to keep himself pure. Verse 23 says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Now apparently wine had a settling effect on Timothy's nervous stomach. Perhaps he had an ulcer. Maybe he had one of those just kind of acid reflux or something. Remember, Timothy was a timid guy. And he may have battled a case of nerves. And in essence, Paul is saying here, take your medicine, Timothy. You know, if a little wine helps settle your stomach, go ahead and take it. Take your medicine. It will help you in your ministry. Verses 24 and 25 remind us that you can't judge a book by its cover. Some sinners look the part, but not all. Likewise, some good works won't be seen until judgment day. You can't judge a book by its cover. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, they ask the question, why should the godly be gullible? If a person comes along teaching things that are contrary to Scripture, we need to discern that deception. and We need to have nothing to do with the deceiver. In verse 5, Paul proves that he's been watching some of those shows on Trinity Broadcasting. He warns that some of the false teachers have mistaken greediness for godliness. They teach that God wants us wealthy. They've turned God into a bank and prayer into an ATM card. They've made faith the key to financial affluence. You know guys, you know I'm just I'm just going to say it. It's a sick puppy who uses God and godliness To fulfill his own greed. I'm sorry. That's a sick puppy. Who uses God. For his own greedy ends. You see here's the problem with riches anyway. Wealth enlarges. Rather than satisfies a man's appetite. Don't you realize the more you get the more you want. (laughs) You know it's, it's like the guy who you know, had billions of dollars and they said, you know, how much is going to be enough? He said, one more dollar. Just one more dollar. Wealth enlarges rather than satisfies. Verse 8 says, The man who is truly happy, who is truly happy, is content with bread on his table and Jesus in his heart. Is that all you need to be happy? Bread on your table and Jesus in your heart. If you are, you're a rich man. The desire for God, not gold, is the key to happiness. As Paul says in verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. You see, the godly person concerns himself not with material riches, but with spiritual riches. Rather than trying to be at home here on earth, he readies himself for heaven. It's been said the key to contentment is not in getting more, but in wanting less. That's it. Wanting less and less of this world and more and more of God. That's the key to happiness. Verse 10 tells us, it's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. It's not money itself. Money itself is not bad. But the love of money. That's what leads us astray. Hey, it's okay for you to possess money just as long as you don't let money possess you. In chapter 6, verse 11, Paul encourages Timothy to adopt a spiritual agenda for his life. What are you pursuing tonight? What are the things that you really want? What are the things that you are really after in your life? Paul tells Timothy, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were called and have confessed. In verses 15 and 16, again, Paul erupts in praise. Verse 15 tells us that when Jesus returns, as with all God's works, He will come in God's own time. In verses 15 and 16, Paul erupts in praise. He says of our Lord Jesus, He who is blessed and, only, and the only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, Dwelling in unapproachable light. Some wonderful praises in this letter to Timothy. In verse 17, Paul tells Timothy, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Now now here's a great balance for your life. Don't live for earthly things. But at the same time, if God blesses you with earthly things, enjoy them. And thank God for them. Just don't live for them. Author Ravi Zacharias, he defines a legitimate pleasure as this. Something that refreshes along the journey without distracting from your ultimate goal. I like that. Something that refreshes along the journey without distracting from the ultimate goal. If it does that, it's fine. It's legitimate. It's good for you. That could include a vacation, or a picnic in the park, or a raft trip, or a ball game, or a bowl of ice cream. And I think I'll have one when I get home. Just don't live your life for it. There's more to life than ice cream and vacations. And picnics and new cars. Don't live your life for it, but don't be afraid to enjoy it as one of God's blessings either. Paul tells Timothy in verses 18 and 19 to remind the rich people that you can't take it with you. I have never seen a hearse pulling a U haul. He says, Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give. Willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. I like the old saying, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And you can if you're ready to give. Rich in good works, willing to share, storing up a good foundation for the time to come. We store up riches in heaven by distributing our riches while here on earth. Paul closes these six chapters to his young protege Timothy in verse 20 and 21 of chapter 6. He says, O Timothy, guard what has committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. And there we have Paul's first letter to Timothy.